All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all here this morning. Thank you for making times like this just times to relax and to rejoice and be restored, to be encouraged, reinvigorated. Father, this is just a moment that is such a treasure for us. We're so grateful that you give them to us. We know that it's all by grace alone that times like this even exist for us to bask in, to enjoy this way. Thank you for these moments, and thank you for the faculties and the ability to, to be grateful this way, to understand moments like this for what they are, grace gifts motivated by your love. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that can't be with us this morning, that they understand that we're with them in prayer, in spirit, and your will be done, of course, in terms of timing. We'd like to have them back to fellowship with them personally. Father, we pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for that event that makes times like this times to rejoice in, that is, the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's unfathomable, but we're so grateful. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Part 61, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. This past week, uh, discipline has continued to dominate the front end of our messages. Uh, Scott, I went on vacation, and Scott taught two really nice messages on um, discipline. And he just sort of has stretched it a little bit, right? Just to make sure that we all understand it, that there's goodness in it, that discipline isn't to be looked at in an adolescent way. Um, just the penalty, just the pain is in view. We need to look at the end goal. And so he's sort of stretched it out for us, which has been really welcomed um, from my perspective. But nonetheless, it has dominated the front end of our messages up here in the board, this has been the verse the Spirit's had us focus on. Hebrews 10, or excuse me, 12.10 Part B says, Very simply, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. So it's for our good, to, to, to make us more holy experientially speaking, to make us more like Him, to make us more righteous in time. That's what it means to be holy to be set apart for His purposes, to be like Him. He says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's the whole end goal of sanctification, is to be made holy, to be sanctified, to be set aside. And God uses discipline as a primary instrument in doing that for us, and therefore it's good. The practical principle up here on the board has been unconfessed sin and unrepentance 
unconfessed, unrepentant sin is like a splinter. Until it is removed, it causes pain. While you may not even see the splinter, you know it is there because the pain tells you that it is. And so then we say, wait a minute, so that means pain must be a good thing. Indeed it is. If you didn't feel pain, you would self-destruct. So to feel pain, to feel, to sense, to understand that you're out of his will for you, his plan for you, is a good thing. That's the essence of pain and discipline. So ultimately, the past four messages have been to drive one single point home. We're to net net all of it up here on the board. In terms of repentance, the end goal of godly discipline is repentance. You have to have that forward-looking biblical stance on what discipline is. It's meant to drive us to repentance, to contrition, right? Not just confess sin, but turn away from it. Ooh, remember? Ooh, that's nasty. Sin is nasty. We have to turn away from that thing, and so the end goal, with the help of discipline, is repentance. We sometimes lose sight of this, this end goal because, you know, in the moment when we're being disciplined, all we think about is the pain. Sometimes the pain is overwhelming. You know, remember like on um, Thursday, that the idea of a throbbing pain. Sometimes at the height of that throb is, you know, all you can, you just see red. You just, oh my goodness, take me out of this moment. All I can see, all I can feel is pain. But here's some guidance from the Spirit on this issue, putting repentance into perspective, getting us there. Whatever it takes, God says, I'm going to get you there because I love you. And I never stop sanctifying you. It's one of the ways we know that we're even believers, is that we can feel this kind of pain, that we have these convictions in our lives. That's one of the ways we know we're even saved. Remember what the Bible says, if you're not being disciplined, then you're not one of his children. That's what the Bible says. So it's really good that you're getting disciplined and you understand it. Up here on the board, repentance is the pathway to healing. Remember, repentance has that idea of just turning away, you know. And deliverance is but a change of perspective away. So, up here even, we're delivered when we repent. Because it's just a changing of our minds even. And when we change our minds about our affinity for sin, we now have our eyes squarely on the Lord, and then everything's good again. You see? This means that if we ever want to if we ever want pain to subside, we have to repent. Otherwise that splinter stays in there, nagging us. And so if we ever want the pain to subside, we have to repent. Here's our promise from Holy Scripture regarding the fruit of repentance, which implies righteousness up here on the board in the amplified Hebrews 12:11. For the time being, no discipline brings joy, but seems sad and painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right standing with God. Remember, that's why I keep doing this thing, you know, 
right standing with God, being right, not just proclaiming it, but actually being right. Right standing with God and a lifestyle, a lifestyle and attitude that seeks conformity to God's will and purpose. That's kind of like a synopsis of what I just said for the first, what, 10 minutes of, of this message. Right standing with God and a lifestyle and attitude that seeks conformity to God's will and purpose. Now, to help us with this concept, this week's blog up here on the board is titled, Righteousness Implies Being Right. Imagine that. It sounds so silly to say it like that. But if we step back, we catch ourselves going, yeah, sometimes I assume righteousness, but I'm actually not right with God. And so I don't have that right to feel or say or proclaim that I'm righteous. Righteousness implies being right. As the Spirit mentioned on Thursday, the reason for the additional perseveration on this topic of, you know, being right is that it's a lot easier to simply, you know, wave a hand and proclaim oneself righteous. You know, how's your spiritual walk? It's great. You've been following the messages? Yep. That's usually the one I get. If I ever do this to you, please don't lie. People lie to me all the time. You keep it up with the messages? Yep. How you know? What do you think of that last one? Which one was that? The one where I talked about X, Y, and Z. I didn't get that one yet. You just said. You just told me. Don't lie. Come on. Just be honest. Isn't that humility is the key, right? Everybody, you know, nobody's perfect. So this, that, that, even that statement is not about condemning you. It's just about being honest. You know, just be honest. I mean, that's what God wants. But the idea, again, is the, you know, the reason for the additional time, if you would, on this topic of being right, is that it's a lot easier to simply wave a hand and proclaim oneself righteous. You know, like, I love Jesus, so go away. You can't tell me, I love God, God loves me, go away. I don't know, because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Something's broken. Don't know. And I was thinking about this. Most people, it seems, you know, when we do that thing, <laughs> yes, I am righteous. I'm good. Most people, it seems, are too self-absorbed to even challenge you when you do that. Most people will go right along with you because they don't really love you enough to watch the car wreck occurring in slow motion, which is you, and to try to put a stop to it. Most people don't, let's face it, most people are too much in love with themselves and too self-absorbed to stop what they're doing and say, hey, friend, maybe this is going on. Most people are too self-absorbed. Those are really good friends that do that for us, by the way. Amen? But most people don't do it. It's too contentious. They're too busy in their own lives. You know, blah, blah, blah. 
Most people aren't a friend to you like I'm being right now. And the question is why? Why? Why, do, why, isn't, why aren't we better friends to each other? Like, you know, in that moment. Because we like to wave our hands and go, I'm a great friend. Are you, though? I'm, a, I'm, your, I'm your best friend. Are you, though? I'm a, I've been a great friend to you over the years. Have you, though? Where were you when I was self-destructing? Did you know? Where were you when you fill in the blanks? When this thing was going on in my life? Why didn't you, why didn't you bring it up? Why didn't you, like, instead of, you know, you know I have this problem. Instead of, instead of feeding it, why didn't you put a stop to it? Like, why didn't you take that moment in time to stop it? Because that's what a good friend would have done. You follow what I'm getting at? But we're too self-absorbed. Maybe we want, you know, I don't know. Anyways, most people aren't a friend to you like the way I'm being right now. Why? Because they fear their, I don't know, maybe their reputation more than they fear the Lord. Maybe they don't want you to think less of them because in that moment it becomes contentious. And so you fear the loss of that friendship for that moment or that you fear that moment more than you fear the Lord. You follow? And so that's where we become bad friends, not good friends. Good friends fear the Lord. I mean, that's the beginning of wisdom for crying out loud. The wise thing to do is to say, hey, this doesn't seem right. Hey, this is wrong. Hey, this is unrighteous. So let's stop waving our hands and agreeing like a ship of fools that everything that's going on right now is okay because it's not. You know, people fear their hand being bitten when they try to feed you the word of truth. They fear the confrontational nature of exposing a sinner's darkness in the light of truth. Go to Ephesians 5.11. Ephesians 5, verse 11. And so this only adds to the issue, right? I mean, you might be, you might be the very hand of God in terms of discipline for a friend. He might use you as an instrument. You might be the, the hot poker. <laughs> you might be the little pinprick. You know what I'm saying? You might be that one that's jab somebody in the ribs. It might be you. It might be something that you are supposed to say that brings on this discipline in your so-called friend's life. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Take no part. Any room for, any wiggle room there? No. No part. Take no part in it. But instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. According to Holy Scripture, it's our job. It's our job to expose the unfruitful works of darkness 
Now, does this mean, as a level set, does this mean that we become, you know, maniacal spiritual police? You know what I'm getting at? Where you got to take an interview before you come into the chapel? Oh, so what have you been up to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, see you're, I see you're sinning again. We're not supposed to be the spiritual police like that. There's a time and place, as Solomon would say, for everything. I mean, Jesus certainly didn't do that, did he? No, he would have spent all his time calling people out because he saw everything as clear as day. Even so, Ephesians 5, 11, and 12 does mean that we are motivated to judge rightly. And when necessary, appropriate, and timely, we do call out others. I taught a, a little mini-series, at least a part of a, a series, on rightly judging. There is such a thing. I'm so tired of people saying, don't judge me. I'm not sentencing you. I'm not saying this is the punishment you deserve. But I'm certainly going to judge rightly when I say, hey, look, the Bible says this and you're doing that. Um, I'm going to judge that rightly. And as a friend, I'm going to tell you, it's wrong. Don't judge me. I'm not judging. I'm judging rightly. You know what I'm saying? Judging is no longer PC, you see. That's all been taken out. It's always somebody else's fault anyways, right? This is, this, is the, this is the generation of it's always someone else's fault. It's never your fault. You don't take responsibility for yourself anymore even. So God forbid someone come from the outside and suggest you do. Because you're going to get run out of Dodge. Right? And if you become that person, here's, some of you can relate to this, if you become that person where you're a godly, God-fearing person who wants to be a good friend to others, you're probably going to end up alone. Maybe even lonely by some people's standards. I, I disagree with that because other reasons. But anyways, you might feel lonely because you actually stand up for the truth. And there's a whole lot of other people <clears throat> that'll feed the animal, the human flesh, in that person that just left you as a friend because you told them the truth. They'll just go somewhere else. They'll get you know their ego or their false sense of righteousness fed by someone who doesn't love them, who really only loves themselves and is looking to gather unto themselves more friends. Who's that about? Is that about you or is that about them? So chances are if you stand up for righteousness, you're going to lose friends even. Here's a little guidance from this on Paul. Go to, oh, excuse me, go to Galatians 6.1. Uh, go to Galatians 6.1. Paul had some guidance on this. <clears throat> Jesus did as well, but here's Paul's. Galatians 6, verse 1. <clears throat> Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So this isn't just for context sake. This isn't necessarily a person who's um, even you know, living in sin. That's another disciplinary thread. 
Uh, you might have to eventually separate from them. This is someone who, you know, does in an instant something that's out of line or sinful. And you say, hey, you know, did you think that that might be wrong? That kind of a thing. You do it privately, too. There's no reason to publicly shame people when they've been out of line. It can get to that point if they refuse. But this is talking about it from a much more intimate relationship uh, perspective. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Sometimes you are the one seeking to see a brother or sister restored, and sometimes someone else is doing this favor for you. In any case, Scripture is clear on the subject of judging sin rightly in time. Again, the whole idea is to be right. That's how we started. Righteousness implies being right, to be right. That's the whole idea, to be oriented to God's will. The end goal, then, is righteousness. The core issue is that this righteousness must be learned. It has to be learned. There are a lot of Christians out there that don't study their Bibles, but yet they say they know the Lord, and yet they say that they're righteous, and yet they say they have a good standing with the Lord, but they don't even know Him. How do you say you're in good graces of someone if you don't know them? How do you know what the Lord thinks of your life or your lifestyle or your decision? How do you even know? if you don't even know him. That'd be like someone asking you, you know, hey, what's Pastor Ed think about you? And you, you just met me for the first time. Not that my opinion matters, but you get the point, right? What, what, is, what does that guy think of you? You know, I think he thinks I'm a great person. <laughs> right? I might think you're a turd. Right? I might. It's possible. I try not to think that way, but you get the point. I'm being extreme to make my point. Unless you know me, you don't know. You don't know. What are my standards? What do I believe? How would, how would you even judge that correctly? And it's the same with the Lord, much, much, much more so. You have to learn what righteousness is. It's not something we are born with. Hence a recent principle up here on the board. Only a fool refuses to challenge their own beliefs. Only a fool does that thing. Think about that. If a fool, or is a fool uh, more afraid of being wrong or more afraid of God? Is a fool more afraid of being wrong or more afraid of God? And this is where we ended on Thursday. If the ultimate source of discerning one's righteousness is the Word of God, then we must have the humility to accept it at face value. If the ultimate source of discerning one's righteousness is the Word of God, then we must have the humility to accept it at face value. And this is where we ended on Thursday. So that brings us to that very simple question, very simple question up here on the board. Do you want the truth or not? Yeah. I mean, that's the very, very simple, the baseline question. Do you want it or not? If you say you do, then this applies up here on the board. Read your Bible with intent 
and especially humility. Especially humility. You have to accept what you read. If you're stuck in life, read your Bible. If you're miserable, read your Bible. If you're confused about something, read your Bible. And then pray, pray, and pray some more. Ask God for wisdom and faith. Ask Him. He says, you can ask me anything. I'll give it to you. If your motivation's correct, don't be like that child, the wishy-washy one who's just like, you know, trying to spend it on their own lust patterns. You know, hey, God, give me a million bucks so I can go be, you know, further my debauchery. He might not answer that. <laughs> but if you're honest and humble and you're seeking the truth, you can ask him for things as fundamental as wisdom and faith. Lord, it's apparent I don't have enough wisdom here. I don't have enough faith. Can I have more? And if you lack the humility to accept what you read, then pray for humility. I pray for that all the time. Lord, give me more humility. Help me accept this thing. In other words, start at ground zero if you must. The point is that you need the Word of God in your life. It's not an option. It's not, it's not an option. When the Word of God talks about giving you first fruits, it's not just financial stuff. That's just a byproduct of having good attitude. It's you. He wants the first of you. Reading your Bible shouldn't be some chore that you do at the end of the day like so you can check it off so that God's not angry with you. He wants you. You need the Word of God in your life. You need to know what is righteous and what isn't so that you can orient, so that some of that pain and misery and suffering can be alleviated at some point in your life from being disoriented, from being unrighteous or self-righteous, stuck in your old ways. So the Word of God, it's not an option. It should be your top priority. Some of you need to repeat that to yourself, like for real. Taking in the Word of God should be your top priority. Your relationship with Jesus Christ should be numero uno. He's not the leftovers of your time and energy. It's not, he's not your leftovers. He wants your first fruits. He wants the very best of you. Now, if that means... That's you, fresh and rare and ready to go first thing in the morning? Then that would be my suggestion, is give him your very best. Wake up, I don't know, a little earlier than normal, and open up your Bible, and start your day with your Bible, so that he can situate you. That's what it means, first fruits. Not leftovers, not I'm too tired. Right? I'm too, I'm too tired from work. Maybe you should get a different job. How many times have I taught on that, honestly? How many times have I taught on that? If your job is, to, if anything, including your job, is taking you away from the Word of God 
then get another job. Make a change. Because that means that it's no longer the word of God that's your first fruit. Right? It's the time you're spending at work or whatever else is taking away from the word of God. That's just a prioritization thing. And according to James, you ought not expect anything from the Lord. Because you're only asking for your own lust patterns. You want to maintain a certain lifestyle when God says that's not the lifestyle that's conducive to sanctification. But I want to keep my lifestyle because 20 years ago, this is what I imagined. You know, the picket fence and the two and a half kids and the cat and the dog and the, the, you know, the car and the, whatever. This is what I imagined. So God's going to have to fit into my world. And it don't work like that. The Word of God has to be your top priority. Your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ has to be your top priority. Living and abiding in the truth is the key to life itself. So just to be a little theological for a moment, consider the fact that the Bible describes Jesus Christ as the Word and the very fullness of grace and truth. In other words, He is the truth. And what does this truth, Christ, say to us? Go to John 15, 1. John 15, verse 1. I mean, he doesn't mess around. It's not like it's rocket science. What I'm teaching you, um, it's not difficult. It's not even far from the first time I've ever taught it. I think everybody in here knows exactly what the Spirit's saying from this pulpit this morning. I'm pretty much. I mean, any questions, I'm more than glad to talk to you one-on-one. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, or excuse me, does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done to you. Did I not just summarize that earlier? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The qualifying factor there is that my words abide in you. In other words, you're oriented to my will. Then whatever you ask is going to be my will. Does that make sense? But what if you don't have the word? You don't even know what his will is. So you're asking for all kinds of cockamamie things. To what? Satisfy your own lusts. Satisfy your own form of self-righteousness so that you can maintain your little, um, you know, that image, that thing that you imagined 20 years ago, that thing that you refuse to budge from, that, you know, so you can maintain this thing, right? You don't want the truth, necessarily. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So God wants us to bear this fruit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Sounds like a command, doesn't it? And then here's verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, how do you keep commandments that you're not aware of? How do you keep the word of God? How do you abide in the word if, you don't even, if you've never read it? Wouldn't that be a little unfair? If you, got, you know, if you were still a kid and you went home and your parent grounded you, and you said, why, why, did I, why am I getting grounded? Because you didn't follow that rule. Hey, you never told me the rule. doesn't matter. Wouldn't you be like, hey, whoa, whoa. You follow? We need those rules. And God has given them to us. For us to abide in them, we have to actually take them in. That's the value of rules. That's the value of commandments, in other words. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's the end game. The end game is your deliverance, is your sanctification. This is what living, or the living truth has to say about Himself. I mean, that's His word after all. So the question remains on the table up here on the board. Do you want truth or not? If you do, second point, read your Bible with intent and humility. And here's where we ended last Sunday up here on the board. The power of truth, the word of truth, is the one thing always able to break the chains of bondage to lies. So we show up at the table as believers, certainly not wholly sanctified. Positionally sanctified, yes. Experientially, we are crawling. We know very little to nothing. That's it. And so our thinking is completely awry. We need to learn what it means to be righteous. We don't just wave a hand. There are whole religions out there that call themselves Christians that basically say, don't worry about it. You're saved now. Don't worry about it. If you feel like it, maybe God will do something in you. Maybe he won't. If you feel like it, come back to the table, but don't worry about it. You're going to heaven. God's pleased. That entire package is the watered-down gospel to start with. I won't get into it. But it's a lie. The whole thing's a lie. Peddled by the pit of hell. Truth is, the word of truth is the one thing always able to break the chains of bondage to lies. So let's step back now and bring the big picture back into focus because we've got to get back to Proverbs 17.6, after all, which involves family. Now, the spirits pointed out that there are a lot of lies being peddled in this world regarding family. A lot of lies. But here's what the Spirit has to say about this up here on the board. A godly family, and this is what we've learned from Holy Scripture, right? Some of you are like, I didn't know. I'd never seen the Scripture on it. I just thought a a good family was a family that didn't kill each other during a pandemic. Right? I thought that was a pretty good start. 
Probably not a bad start, but that's not where it ends. I thought a good family just, you know, spoiled each other, you know, and just, quote, unquote, loved each other in that way. Oh, my husband, he's so great. It was Valentine's Day, and he bought me a dozen roses. Big deal. Where's he the rest of the year? No, do you know what I'm saying? Where's he when it matters? Big deal. You follow? But I thought that's what, you know, I thought that's what good family was. No. Why don't you read your Bible? Then you can find out what good family is. Then you can understand what God thinks about family. Why even he constructed it the way he did. So we learn this. A godly family is an obedient family. A godly family is a family blessed with hope and love, keeps Christ at the center, brings glory to God. Brings glory to God. That's what a godly family looks like. And those are all principles that we gleaned from Holy Scripture. And if we hadn't gone to Holy Scripture, you know what? That list would be empty. It would be conjecture. We would be like, I guess it really does mean on Valentine's Day the husband brings the wife flowers. Some made-up garbage holiday, nonetheless. I guess that's what it means. I guess on such and such a holiday or on birthdays, we've got to make this big hoopla and make it all... <laughs> what do you fill in there if you don't have the truth from this? And by the way, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with roses, so if you sent or received roses, don't take it the wrong way. I'm saying the substance of a family has nothing to do with that. What do you put in there in the absence of truth? Honestly, wouldn't it just be speculation? Wouldn't it just be conjecture? Yeah, that's exactly what it would be. That's precisely what it would be, because you don't have the truth, so you don't know any better. Fortunately for us, we're on part 61 of this series, and probably the last, I don't even know, maybe 15, 20 parts has been on family. I'd have to check. But a lot has been done on family. Amen? Me? No amen, huh? You guys don't like the family bit? Time to move on? You probably just condemned us to another month. I'm just saying. Jeez, people, wake up. Learn, learn. <laughs> uh, I'm very grateful for these messages. Are they tough? Yeah. Have I been convicted as I'm speaking? Yeah. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. This is why we have to learn. Anyways, the corollary, as we've learned it, is up here on the board. Maximum glory to God is the result of His love being present in a family. Maximum glory to God is the result of His love being present in that family. And godly love at that. Not that subjective stuff that exists only for as long as someone else perceives the other person as, you know, giving them something to love. Love is the tie that binds us, especially in our families, whether physical or spiritual. Go to Romans 13, 8. Romans 13, verse 8. I'll go quickly. These are all points of review. Romans 13, verse 8. I mean, this, if, in, any other, if, if in no other circumstance in life, these two verses, 8 and 10, should be what fills our cups in our families, in our marriages even, right? Romans 13, 8. 
Owe no one anything except to love each other. Remember, the love fulfills the whole law. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Look at verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That has to be your focus. Love the way Christ loved, because of who and what he is. He didn't love subjectively. He didn't love because that person deserved his love. He loved because that's who he is. And that's how we're supposed to love. We're supposed to love others, especially in our families, because of who we are, not because of who they are. And that goes for parents towards children and children towards parents. Right? If you're one of these children that thinks just because mommy and daddy are human and they make mistakes, therefore they don't deserve your love, well, you're a little jackass. I mean that with all sincerity. Wait till you grow up and have kids. It's really hard. Wait till you grow up and have kids like you. You follow what I'm saying? It's really hard. Kids are brats. They think they know it all, especially somewhere around eighth grade, right? That's all it was for me. In eighth grade, I literally thought I could move out on my own. I remember thinking it. I'm like, I could do this. I pretty much know everything I need to know, right? I was serious, too. I remember. Now it's ridiculous. I'm looking at it. I'm like, geez. But in that moment, I was like, I think I know everything I need to know. I could probably make it on my own. Paul carried this same theme with him of love, of protecting uh, that love to the church at Galatia. Also, uh, not just to his letter to Romans that that we just read, but here he cast a warning to the Galatians who weren't exhibiting love but rather jealousy and strife. That has to be one of the most grossest things in any family, where sibling, you know, sibling rivalry, that kind of garbage. It's so ugly. It's so disgusting. It's so grotesque. It's so destructive and erosive in a family. Why can't we just be um, glad? Why can't we just be happy for each other? Why can't we just look at another person who happens to be do something, maybe something we could hardly even dream of ever doing because we don't have the God-given ability, let's say, and just be happy? Why can't we be happy for the ones we supposedly love? Because it's not love. Do you understand the perversion? Because it's always been about you. It's always you because you're jealous. Because as they progress, as they move on, as they advance, as they see success or whatever it is that's bothering you, you're moving down a notch, right? The separation in your perverse system of thinking is expanding. And your flesh is crying out and being a a punk. Go to Galatians 5.14. Galatians 5.14. Galatians 5.14. So Paul's warning this way, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. We just read that in Romans, right? So there's our connective tissue. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Common theme with Paul. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Who doesn't, honestly, let's face it, who doesn't want to love their family members? I mean, don't you? Of course you do. You want to. What's the problem? It's your stupid flesh. It's jealous. It's petty. It's disgusting. It's competitive. It's, it's gross. And it doesn't want to love. It only wants to love them for as long as they're serving you. As long as they're serving your purposes. It's your flesh. So the next time you're acting like a fool, where you're starting to devour someone else because you're being fleshly, look at your flesh and say, I'm being really fleshly right now, ain't I? Yes, you are. You're actually sowing discord in that beautiful thing God calls family. You're a cancer. So reflect on that. The divine institutions of marriage and family are hotly contested battlegrounds in this world. But our hope is that the truth will always cut through the lies. Moreover, that love will do the job. That love will do the job. Love conquers all. That's the beauty of Christ-like love, you see? As soon as it's no longer dependent on someone else, it's yours. And God says, cling to it, because now you're abiding in my love. And you don't need another soul to approve. You can stay right there and be peaceful there for the rest of your life. Because now it has nothing to do with other people, even those crazy people that live in the same house as you. (laughs) Right? You can live in peace and contentment if you abide in my love. Up here on the board, maximum glory to God is the result of his love being present in a family. So, again, we're elevating our thinking. This entire time we've been focusing on godly families. So much of it has been pure encouragement from the holy, sovereign God of the universe. This is all he's trying to do. He's saying, I gave you this gift. Oh, my goodness. I described it to you this morning. When I said, look it, when I, when I was praying and thinking about how beautiful it was to be here with you all, you are my family, right? I'm not saying I'm Jesus, but you know when he said, this is my family, right? When he was, you know what I'm saying, right? So th- th- this is a family. This is a, a beautiful thing. This is encouraging. This is beautiful. Embrace it. This entire time we've been focusing on godly families, so much of it has been pure encouragement from the holy, sovereign God of the universe. So much of it has been to focus our attention on the basics. Yeah, I said the basics. It seems so easy to lose sight of the basics. Basically, we have a beautiful church. Amen? 
Every time I pull up, I'm like, man, I used to tell a story to Jane and Art and Frank and Betty and the folks that were here. And I used to draw some on a blue, you know, once on a blue moon, I, I would, uh, is that actually a phrase, once on a blue moon? I don't know. Once in a bloom, I would drive up this road, had no other business, I would drive, and I'd be like, man, what a beautiful church that is. I loved it. And then here we are, right? Here's the basics. We're in this beautiful church in this beautiful town where we can actually worship God without being shot at. That's like basic 101. Basically, we all got here this morning somehow. Good to see Robin back there. Is she back there somewhere? It looks like she's sleeping, though. Robin, I can see your feet. I can see, what? There's a pillow, blanket. Oh, come on. Anyways, you know what I'm saying, right? Those are the basics. You know what? You're here. Basic. Woo, right? You got the Word of God presented to you. Pretty basic stuff. You've got a family here. I don't care if you live alone. You have a family here that loves you. That is, well, I can only speak for myself, ferociously protective over you. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not going to get that outside of a godly family, whether it's at this scale or at the home. Basics. Basics. We all seem to lose sight of the basics. Jeez, I'm gonna, I gotta, my next slide is making me tear up. And anyways, can you put it up? Funny, I didn't even shed a tear yesterday. Uh, at Frank Coughlin's funeral, <clears throat> at the gravesite, his two wonderful children had so many kind things to say about him. And it was truly moving, honestly, to hear the, the love they had for their dad. Uh, Jim, Frank's son, described his dad as the most successful man he knows. And for the record... Jim's a happily married man, holds a law degree, has a beautiful son of his own, you know, successful in his own right. But his dad was the most successful person he's known. And as Jim spoke, he tied his dad's success back to two things. I might say, you know, Frank's love of two things. He said it was his love for the Lord and his love for family. And, I said, and I'm like sitting there going, what is this? And it was funny because we were at the funeral home and I, and I did a longer service there. And Jim rushed up to me afterwards and said, did you know that we wrote that on Dad's card? That verse, I think it was John 15. Did you know? I said, no. And he was teary. I said, Jim, that's how God works. He does it all the time. Those are winks from heaven. Right? I said, Dad, that's how he works. He's basically giving you a big hug. 
right now. We hadn't even communicated about it. And in a short 15-minute message, I had the exact passage that they had chosen for Frank's card there. But back to yesterday at the gravesite. First is love for the Lord, and second is love for family. According to his son, this is his father's great legacy. The thing that Jim wanted all present to hear loud and clear. And frankly, it was beautiful to hear. Love for the Lord and love for family. And it did. It got me thinking about all the Spirit's been saying here as of late. If you get right down to it, (laughs) the theme has been the same. Love for the Lord and love for family. So it's encouraging to hear a man say that about his dad, who also happened to be a member at North Christian Church. Um, I also heard both Jim and Julie, uh, Julie's Frank's daughter, talk about one other thing. Discipline. Discipline in Frank's home. So not only did he, they talk about the love of the Lord and the love of family, but they also mentioned discipline in the home. That all members of the household knew who the ultimate authority was in that home. Frank had discipline alongside of this wonderful love that permeated he and Betty's godly home. So I'm just, I'm just sharing from yesterday's goings-on that I was very encouraged personally. Uh, and I hope you are too. And so let's be encouraged no matter what. We have a Father in Heaven who has sworn to never leave or forsake His own children. Let us be encouraged, because that's what's been going on here. I want you to know it's not about anything other than abiding in His love and being set free. And that there are practical aspects to that abiding. And one of the clearest places in Holy Scripture is in the family. And that's what I found so encouraging about what the Spirit did for many, actually. Graveside was this highlight of love for the Lord, love for family, and even discipline. Because they're all in that same sphere of God, you know? They're all right there. And when you think about God's will for us, He wants us there with Him. He wants us there now with Him, not just ultimately, but now even, so that we can enjoy. So, as Jesus said, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this morning. Thank You for giving us truth, for it's truth that sets us free. Thank you also for remembering Frank Coughlin, his family, 
Our prayers go out to them. Maybe they, they be comforted as well. We're so grateful for the illustration you've given us. To that end, regarding family, love for the Lord, love for family and discipline as well, Father. Grace gifts once again. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and your will be done out to a world that just needs these things so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.